a home builder um, called, uh, well, now it's Toll Brothers. They, they were, Toll Brothers bought out the company that she worked for called Town and, Town and Country Homes. So Holly was uh, an executive assistant there, and then she moved into the, into the marketing department um, while, I was, you know, while we were doing youth ministry together at this church. And every, not every job, many jobs have like fringe benefits, you know what I mean? Like there's things that come with the fact that you're in relationship with these people and do these things in this business. And so, um, you know, like so if you, you know, came to visit and work for Lifeway, for example, I might be able to throw you a CSB Bible or something like that. Well, Holly working for a home builder, what, what that gave us as first-time home buyers, we were renting an apartment at first, but we bought a townhome. What that gave us was access to uh, contractors at cost and to building supplies at cost. So this townhome that we bought was, in, was really in great shape with the exception of the, of the kitchen. And so uh, when we bought it, we, we knew that we would spend, you know, about five or $6,000 renovating the kitchen, which is what it would cost us at cost. And by renovating the kitchen, all I'm really talking about is the cabinets and the countertops, right? So, uh, man, first day when we got all that lined up, the contractor came out and he ripped out all the cabinets and popped off the, you know, the countertops and pulled out the base and, and pulled out the, the, um, the tops. And uh, it was like done. You know, these guys could knock this out in a couple hours. And then, you know, they, sure enough, they came in. The new cabinets were in the next day. They put in the, the new cabinets down low. And, um, and then, and the, but they didn't do the top ones because they wanted to wait until we got the countertops in, right? So the, I've got the base cabinets, no doors, no hardware. I've got no countertop. Um, I do have uh, appliances except for the microwave, which goes over the oven inside these cabinets. So I don't, and I don't have any cabinets up top. And it, you know, we'll be here in a day or, or a day or two. We're like three weeks go by. And we have no, we have the same situation. So because I'm 26 and stupid, uh, I am like getting viscerally angry about the scenario. Like, not because I cooked, you know, not because I had children to cook for. Um, I I lived out of a fast food lane when I was a youth minister or or pizza that the church ordered on our behalf, right? Like that's, it's not, it wasn't for those reasons. It was just because I was an entitled selfish brat, right? That's what it came, came down to. Um, and so uh, we finally, you know, I raised enough, it's delicate, like, because these are Holly's people that she works with, so we couldn't be really, like, upset, because you know how that goes, right? There's some of that relationship, you want to be gentle, but at the same time, it's like, man, we're kind of living in, you know, like we were living out of, uh, you know, like in some sort of destitute situation with our lack of cabinets and countertops. So finally, you know, this, this guy shows up one, one, one morning at the, at the door of my day off on Friday or Saturday, and he's there, and he's going to build in countertops using uh, wood instead of putting down the laminate down. He's going to put this real solid wood, you know, countertops down for us. Instead, I'm like, man, I'm so, so glad you're here, and I acted all appreciative and really under my heart, you know, I'm like, about time, you know, because I'm a selfish brat. And um, so he, he comes and he starts installing and he's really nice. And I'm just kind of down there talking to him, you know, and, 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 and I start just giving him the story, you know, like the three weeks. And can you believe how, you know, how long we've had to wait and how we've just been so hard living in this house without, you know, countertops and uh, just on and on and on and on. And he goes and he finally just looked at me, did not know me from Adam, but he was so nice. And he looked right at me and he said, yeah, Mr. Timms. I mean, he's 20 years older than me. Yeah, Mr. Timms, this sounds like one of those times where the Lord thought you needed more character. Is that not awesome? 
And I just, I, I had ne- not, not since my father, when I was 14 or 15, had I had anybody ever talk to me that way, which was the problem. Because I didn't have anybody speaking into me and coaching me in this character, that trait that this gentleman was introducing to my life called humility. Humility. A very humble moment. Very grateful for that trait, for that quality that he spoke into my life. And so I, I, I want to um, double down on that word on that quality, on that trait when it comes to to biblical leadership. And we're going to do that from 1 Peter 5 today. I would submit to you that this is the most important trait for all all leaders and all leaders in the church in particular. So if you'll stand with me uh, to look at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, together. I'm going to read from the CSB. I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So let me give you a little bit of backstory to 1 Peter um, just so you can understand the, the context and why he's saying what he's saying. Uh, most of us have probably grown up in a culture in which being a Christian is kind of normal, if not expected, and so, um, which you know. Uh, but that was not the case for these, obviously, these first Christians, um, especially for something like this being a new religion. So many of the people that Peter was writing to were regarded as very weird, very strange, uh, superstitious. Uh, maybe even disloyal to the Roman uh, government because they would do things like gather together in groups of people, but they would do it in kind of in a secretive way. Um, the perception was that they that Christians practiced really strange rituals, uh, like the Lord's Supper, which was you know was kind of misinterpreted as like some sort of bloody sacrificial ritual that they would do. Christians during Peter's time were extremely countercultural out of the gate. Um, some Christians would even refuse to serve in the Roman army because they didn't want to come across as people worshiping uh, the Roman emperor. So if you have those kinds of behaviors going along uh, in this culture, it created a lot of tension for Christians. To be a Christian really cost you something culturally. You know, I grew up in a small southern town. Being a Christian gained you a lot socially. It gained you a lot culturally. That was not the case in the early going for the Christian church. Christians were discriminated against. Christians were accused of behavior um, that would put them uh, in in jail. It just did not serve you well to be a Christian. So that's what Peter is writing to. That's the situation that the churches were having to deal with, and so that's what he's addressing. So if you go through 1 Peter, you would see that there are all kinds of trials associated with being a Christian, that non-Christians were shaming them publicly and, and maligning their character. 
And so if you're a Christian in that moment, you really have two options, right? You can either run away from that environment where you're being oppressed, or you can come back at them, right? So you can flight or you can fight. Um, and that's what the battle is for Christians in that situation. So the, um, the same thing that was taking place in these churches that Peter was writing to. So in the midst of all this suffering... In the midst of all this persecution, the Christians are very tempted to compromise their lifestyle, right? To flight from that environment by compromising their faith, compromising their lifestyle to a point that would make it acceptable to the world. Or they were tempted to retaliate against those people who are doing those things to them. And they were actually doing the same thing. Oh, yeah, you're going to come at me. We're going to come back at you. So what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to compromise so that you become palatable and acceptable? Are you supposed to retaliate and become like the very people who are attacking you? Well, Peter knew that you could do neither. He knew that neither was consistent with the gospel. And so he wrote this letter as an encouragement to Christians to view all the accusations, all the unfair treatment as an opportunity to bear witness to the gospel, which, by the way, is a very powerful picture if you want to point to unfair treatment, misunderstanding, the gospel. And Peter's point, if you want to just look at 1 Peter in one sentence, it's that the Christian response to this kind of treatment is not fight and it is not flight. It is to live an exemplary life as Jesus did toward one's enemies. And that is a hard and humble calling. So in order for Christians to live humbly, Peter knew that they needed leadership in this area. Not just teaching, which he is doing through this letter, but he knew that they also needed leadership in this area. And leadership, by definition, in this requires humility. It requires humility. So if you look through 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5, I want to show you three things about humility in this text. The first is that Peter models it. The second thing is that Peter mandates it. Um, and, then, and then thirdly, uh, Peter uh, doesn't just model it. He doesn't just, he doesn't just mandate it, but he also shows how the gospel is the motive for humility. And I think this is really, really, really important. So look with me, if you will, um, at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Look what Peter says. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings at Christ, um, sufferings of Christ. So uh, the word exhort, stop there just for a moment. An exhortation is a, it's a strong statement, okay? Um, it's not a suggestion. It's not something I want you to think about. It, it's, uh, it's an imperative for you to, to live by. It's not advice. It's an earnest and urgent admonition that is not optional. It is something that they must pay attention to and submit to and give their lives to. But before Peter gets into the content of what he wants them to do with the exhortation, look what he does. He identifies with those he is writing to. I exhort the elders among you. How? As a fellow elder and as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. So you see what Peter is doing. He is modeling for them the humility that he's going to ask of them or exhort of them here in a moment. 
and, by, and he models it by referring to himself as an elder and by referring to himself as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. So this is fascinating. Why is that a humble thing? Why is that modeling humility? Well, think about this. Number one, Peter's so much more than an elder when it comes to the hierarchy of Christianity in the early church. Peter's a disciple. Peter, Peter was arguably like the most memorable, famous disciple for good reasons and bad. But Peter was a, an apostle. He, he lived and saw and walked with Jesus. But he doesn't throw that, that stake in the ground and say, now I want you to listen to me when it comes to humility because I am Peter the apostle. That's not what he does. He says, I am a fellow elder. I'm just like one of you. So Peter models humility by claiming joint status with them in their eldership of the congregation, not authoritative status over them as some sort of pope over all the churches. He comes alongside. He's modeling for the elders what he's going to ask of the elders. He feels that in order to communicate what he needs to communicate about humility, that he's got to model it, that he's got to demonstrate solidarity with them just as much as he exhorts them and teaches them. Now, if you read through 1 Peter, this is not the, this is, he doesn't do this through the whole letter, right? He tells the elders in verse 2 to exercise oversight, which inherently applies that elders have authority to make decisions in the church. And if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, I am Peter the apostle, which helps identify him as the actual author of the letter. But in this context, Peter personally models that humility that expects of other elders. But he doesn't just do that. Look at the phrase. As a fellow elder and... Witness to the sufferings of Christ. Now, why do that? Why do that? Well, I mean, in one sense, you know, Peter does this because he wants to remind suffering churches, churches who are suffering because of their belief in Christ's suffering. He wants to remind them of the gospel. He wants to remind them that they are experiencing exactly what Christ said they would experience. So there's, there's that part. But, but Peter's also doing something here that is really, really humble. He's modeling humility with this phrase. Think about Peter's experience in Matthew 26 with the sufferings of Jesus. Was that a proud moment for Peter? Was that a moment where Peter could look back and go, man, I really came through for Jesus on that one? It's the exact opposite. This is the moment in Peter's life where he three times betrayed knowledge or a relationship with Jesus to complete strangers out of convenience for his own hide, his own reputation. And yet here... He says to this church, I say to you as a fellow elder and as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, a very poor example, by the way, of the witness of the sufferings of Christ. I say this to someone who is restored. I say this as someone who's renewed. I say this as someone who's been forgiven. I say this as someone who knows what it means to run from Jesus when times get hard, to not want to suffer well. I know, I know, but I'm exhorting you 
And we'll tell you about that exhortation in a moment. So Peter here is modeling humility. I'm an elder with you. I am one who has sinned. I am one who has been restored. I am one who's repented. And I am one who will share with you in Christ's glory upon his return. I'm modeling for you what I'm getting ready to mandate of you. Peter's a model. And what is the, what is the mandate? Look at verse 2 and 3. What's the mandate? Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So the first thing I want to very quickly point out to you is that the congregation here, if you look in the text, shepherds God's flock among you, Blackman Baptist Church is God's church. You belong to God, not to Kevin. Thankfully, right? Yes, Kevin's nodding, so we're good here. We have a humble elder. Ken, Blackman doesn't belong to Ken. Blackman doesn't belong to a pastor. Blackman belongs to God's flock. The identity of a congregation is not its temporary earthly location or its temporary earthly leaders, but it is our eternal Savior and our heavenly Savior, Jesus. Shepherd God's flock. That goes straight to humility if you're a pastor. It goes straight to humility if you're an elder. Because for elders and pastors, leadership of the church is not ownership of the church. It is stewardship of the church. When I was a a kid, I, I loved eating out. This is because I grew up in a really small town where restaurants were sparse, at least ones worth eating in. And so I just ate a lot of baked chicken my entire life at dinner and a lot of cereal or muffins growing up in the morning. So when we traveled, it was like, oh, glorious, a restaurant. And by restaurant, I mean like Applebee's, right? Like that was incredible, which is fine. Like, but it was just to a kid, Shoney's. Oh, my goodness, if I could have eaten at a Shoney's every day as a child. Like it was just awesome. But you knew, as I knew as a child, I was going to a really nice restaurant when on the front of the door, it had the name over glass, gold letters, and then underneath it would say somebody's name and then the word proprietor. Restaurant, name, proprietor, which is to say the owner. And then in very small letters, maybe at the bottom of the door where your foot scuffed it, it would have the name of the General manager, right? So owner, proprietor, general manner, steward. You know what elders and pastors are? General managers. We are general managers. There are no proprietors in the pastorate, just general managers. The congregation is God's flock to which Peter says to the elders, shepherd them, not be in charge This is Jesus' church. This is different. It's different. We are stewards of Jesus' leadership and Jesus' execution in the church. So therefore, what do they do? Look at the text. Shepherding, not overseeing out of compulsion, as God would have you, not out of greed, but Lord and not lording it over. So we have two words here: shepherding and overseeing. Shepherding and overseeing. What does this mean to be shepherd? Well, that's a very humble word choice. Um, it's, a, it's a very humble word choice for a humble task. It's humble in part 
because it equates church leadership with a job in biblical times that wasn't exactly admired. But it's also another veiled reference back to the conversation that Jesus had with Peter post-resurrection and therefore after Peter's denial. Do you remember this conversation in John 21 where Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And he asked him three times. And each time Jesus said yes. And in response, Jesus said to Peter what? To do what? Feed my sheep. So it's a humble word choice for a very humble way of life and a humble task. But there is a task. Shepherding, first and foremost, if not predominantly, is feeding God's people God's word. And if a pastor or an elder is going to rightly feed God's people, it requires a tremendous amount of humility because he is feeding the sheep with God's word, not anything else. So you can imagine, to try, try to imagine the tremendous amount of pride We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. The the tremendous amount of pride that can well up in someone who is charged with doing what I'm doing right now. You, You can get very tempted to teach an opinion, to teach your own premonitions, to use the classroom to push a political opinion. You imagine what it would be like to come to Sunday school one day or to come to worship one day where you know that the teacher that morning is determined to entertain you, to impress you, to charm you, to gratify you, or to sell you, but is not really concerned with feeding you. Think about, how, think about what church would be like. Think about the relationship that you would have with your elder or, or pastor in that regard. No, Peter says, shepherd God's flock, it means it's feed God's flock. And he, and he means God's word. A leader of God's people ministering to a lost world has nothing better to say to God's people or a lost world than God's word. What is a church here for if it's not for that, right? The biblical mandate for elders in this and every congregation that claims Jesus is to give you a, a Sunday school lesson Give you, and I mean if you're three years old or, or 93 years old, the purpose of that, of that role is to give you a lesson or a sermon whose point is the point of the Bible. God's flock needs God's word, nothing else. Uh, Charles Jefferson wrote a book called The Minister as Shepherd, which kind of elaborates on this point that, that Peter's talking about. And he, he wrote this, he says, Everything depends on the proper feeding of the sheep. Ken asked this question in Sunday school this morning. Like, what, what level of importance do we place on teaching the Bible in, in our, in, from, to expect of leaders? Well, Charles Jefferson says everything depends on it. Unless wisely fed, sheep become emaciated and sick, and the wealth invested in them is squandered. When the minister goes into the Sunday school class, when the minister goes into the pulpit, he is the shepherd in the act of feeding. And if every minister had borne this in mind, many a sermon would have been other than it has been. You understand the gravity of what he's saying. A shepherd who fails to feed the sheep God's word won't have a flock. Won't have a flock. They're going to go to another church where they're being fed. Where they'll die of starvation. 
So a shepherd is committed to the proper feeding of the sheep and needs to do it properly, biblically, with substance, emotion, and content. Feeds understanding, feeds feeling. It's you, it, one in which we, we try and know and understand each other and say things in a way that makes sense and are actually helpful. And that's a humble thing. That requires a lot of humility. So feeding, shepherding. But then the word overseeing. Look at that word. Teaching is not the only task. There's the task of oversight. Peter says to the, he wants, he wants them, the elders, to shepherd the flock by overseeing. And then he lists three contrasts. Three sins, if you will, and then the response that it should be, the actual thing that it should be, the negative and the positive, right? And the first one is not lazily, out of compulsion, but willingly. That's verse 2. Not overseeing out of compulsion, but doing it willingly. That's the way God would have you do it. God would have you do it willingly. Um, the, the, the Greek word here implies slothfulness, not, um, uh, not out of indifference, um, but not, not lazily. So now I want to talk about this word lazy because um, it can it manifests itself in ways that are not quite as, sometimes not quite as obvious. Like you think you know what lazy means, but there, but there are some ways that may not be as, as clear. So first, for example, um, if, uh, if I'm at home and uh, as I will be this afternoon and all day tomorrow without Holly, without Trey, and without Jonathan, so just be me, Abby, and Luke, and um, and I say I say, boys and girls, Luke, Abby, you guys go you go clean your go clean your room, and Luke says, but Dad, do I have to? Which he may or may not have ever said before. I'm not saying he has. I'm just saying I mean, that's that's possible. Like we get that kind of like he's deflecting the responsibility of cleaning his room, really because in his heart he has something else that he wants to do. He's there, that's a form of of laziness, right? But Psalm Proverbs 26, 13, and 16, I find to be more prevalent in my in, in ministry. So it says this. There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the public square. Now, why does a lazy person say that? Seems like to me the sentinel would say that. Or, you know, the the very cautious, the neighborhood creepo person that's like in charge of neighborhood watch would say would say that, right? That's always looking in your windows or whatever. Like, like you say like that person would say that. No, that's not what it says. It says the lazy person says that. Well, why is that lazy? Because lazy people create the wildest excuses to not do what they're supposed to do. And so an elder might be tempted to create some semblance of any reason that would appeal to your sense of fear or your your sense of security so that he or she you know so that so that, so that the elder doesn't have to do what it is that he should do. That's laziness. Proverbs twenty six sixteen in his own eyes a slacker is wiser than seven who can answer sensibly. This is a laziness that manifests itself in the form of a person somebody else. I, I'm not going to do what your idea is. Uh, I'm not even going to pursue it because I know better. It's laziness disguised as intellectual superiority. Another form of laziness. Less obvious, more prevalent. Laziness where an elder allows other people in the church to dictate the calendar and the agenda. So an elder can neglect his oversight if he just lets, oh, they'll take care of it. 
whatever. Maybe it's indifference. It's laziness. And Peter says, shepherd and oversee, not out of compulsion, not out of laziness, but willingly. Willingly. It's a stark contrast, right? To want to own it. Not be, to want to own it. Verse 3, not greedily, but not out of greed for money, but eagerly, right? So as far as this word choice here, Peter uses a word that implies embezzlement, by which money would come into the church to, to pad your own pocket. But at a deeper level, what Peter's really getting about here is just the love of money. If, if a, a love for money drives an elder's desire to work and gives him a sense of self-worth, then he's in a lot of trouble because he'll do or not do all kinds of things in the church for that thing he ultimately loves, which is money. So if you make money your motivation, if you make money the, the driver behind leading and, and, and elding and, and serving and pastoring and shepherding in a church, you will pastor according to that greater good, which is money, and that will take the church down a path in which all things revolve around your desire to be wealthier. Imagine what a church would get itself into if that were the case. Now, you'd be surprised, but there are far too many people who get into the ministry because of the perceived... Oh, I skipped a... I hate when I do that. I hate when I like skip a whole paragraph thinking that I'm just, you know, just, you know, cooking with gas. Eagerly, eagerly, rather than doing something in ministry based first and foremost on what's in it for you, the elder is to say, how can I seek the gain of others? How can I seek the gain of others? And then lastly, lording versus modeling, lording versus modeling. The last three weeks I've preached 20 minute sermons. I'm making up for it this morning. I'm sorry. Look at verse 3. Don't lord it over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. So you may find it surprising, but there are lots of people. Oh, y'all been at Lifeway nine years. Let me tell you, there are lots of people who go into the ministry because of the perceived power that it gives them over people. And that's what Peter's getting at here with this phrase, lording over, using the power of the office to subject people to your preferences. Uh, they lead with threats. They lead with intimidation. They lead with politics. They use people to serve their own wishes or desires. They manipulate you into thinking highly of them all the time. It's a person who's all too willing to humiliate you so that you'll be subject to them whenever they need to use you. They're often very charismatic and terrifying. <laughs> and Peter says, no, 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 don't do that. Set an example like Jesus did. You can't pastor others well without being in a relationship with those people. You have to be known by them. You have to be loved by them. You have to serve them. Which goes right back to, to verse 2, right? Shepherd God's flock among you. It's, there's a relational component that's required to shepherding, to being an elder. Feeding is not just preaching and teaching, and it's actually dropping Bible everywhere you go as an elder. I remember being, I went to pastor this church in South Carolina, and the first time somebody went in the hospital, or there was like an emergency, I was terrified. 
I was terrified. Somebody's mobile home burned to the ground and I did not know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And then uh, uh, a couple weeks later, someone was murdered. There was a murder a mile from my house. This lady drove up in the driveway and she was shot by an escaped convict and she died. What do I do? What do I say? You have, there's a relational known among you component to being an elder because no sermon was going to speak in that moment. But the Bible in relationship to those people, in the moment with those people, that, that would speak. It's not just about the preaching and the teaching. It's shepherding God's flock among you, doing life with them. Which is why Peter uses this phrase, um, uh, it's, it's, the, it's in verse, uh, overseeing out of compulsion, out of greed. Verse 3, not lording it over, but being examples. That's a great word. Underline the word example. It's, the Greek word is tupos. It means uh, a blow or a pressure. So if you went out and looked at my car, you'd find right over the driver's side window, a, a, about that big, uh, from a rock hitting my windshield. Just a nice little star, you know, it's probably small enough to repair, but, you know, next winter, because I'm probably going to ignore it because I'm, a di- because I'm a dummy. And it's just going to, you know, it'll eventually thread all the way across. Like there's this mark that a rock made because I was driving down I-40 one day behind a truck too close. It's my own fault. Okay. That's what Peter is trying to say. Don't lord it over. Put pressure from your life into their life. Make a mark. Be an example. And an example requires life against life. That's what it means. So pastors are to set an example, put their life against the life of another person. Be a model for the gospel. So why? Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfounding, unfading crown of glory. The reason elders are supposed to be humble people and lead in humility is because they have the highest possible value, um, which is the, the, the longing for the return of the perfect minister. The fuel for humble ministry is the longing for the return of Jesus. Pride is the result and the reward for a pastor who's fueled by whatever this earth can give them, power, money, influence. Humility is the result for a pastor fueled by what only heaven can give him. So oftentimes, if things have gone awry in the heart of a leader, it is because he treasures something that isn't eternally valuable. And the solution is to treasure Jesus and his return. And what does this mean for you? Verse 5, wrapping it up. In the same way, you who are younger... Be subject to the elders, all of you, all of you, all of you, all of you, all of me, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. There's the relational component again. Because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, which is Proverbs 3, 34. So here's, here's, the, here's the trick. Here's the trick. That which you are to expect in your elders and pastors, you must model for your elders and your pastors. In the same way that you are to look to your elders and your pastors to humbly shepherd in the right manner, he is to be able to look to you as an example of humility. 
if we want pastors who feed God's flock with God's word, then we need to be sheep who demand and devour God's word. If we want to have pastors who are not lazy but willing, who are not greedy but eager, who do not lord it over but serve, then we need to model it for them. We need to serve not because of what's in it for us, but because of what's in it for the glory of Jesus. And pray. My goodness. When I, when I tell people, when I, Franklin or life, you know, in Lifeway, because we don't, you know, we don't live, I don't live here. We're so, we're new to the congregation, so to speak. So if, when I tell people, like, yes, eight, nine-year-old church plant, and um, so I, I'm, I'm come, we're joining the church. We're you know, teaching, te- be teaching, kind of carrying that burden for the for the elders and, and teaching. And they said, no, wait a minute, they've been doing what for nine years? I said, well, they, they planted the church and they've been doing the preaching and then the Sunday school and the leadership and the administration and they have other jobs and responsibilities and people just go, whoa! They can't believe the things that God has done in and through you and the burdens and the stress that come along with that, 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 that come along with all that. They can't believe it. And I, I know, I know that one of the reasons why that, that, has not, that things have not gone more sour than they haven't is because you have prayed for your elders when Spurgeon visited the United States, he was asked about the secret of his ministry, and you know what his response was? My people pray for me. That's, inc- that's incredible. He could, have said, uh, he could have said, I smoke cigars, and that's why I'm awesome. He could have said all kinds of things, right? But he didn't. He said, my people pray for me. So would you pray for your elders? Would you just pray this text over them? Pray that for you, pray for one another, that you'll hunger for the word and participate in the life of the ministry and just and be and be humble people. Because that's the congregation. Let me tell you, that is the congregation that will absolutely impact this town. Father, would you make us that congregation? Uh, which is to say, would you make much as yourself and not us? That you would not let us be tempted by personality or talent or skills, or gifts, or charisma, or, or a celebrityism, or any of the things that this world might say you quote-unquote need in order to be a successful, vibrant church. But instead, would you lead us to humility? Lead us to be a church that makes much of you and not of ourselves. Lead us to be a church that serves one another, not lords it over one another. Lead us to be a church that feeds the word, not the opinion of man. We ask it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.